0: Last week I preached from Matthew 5, 5, 17 and 18 and we learned how Jesus said, I've not come to abolish the law or the prophets, I've come to fulfill them. We learned what that meant. The law and the prophets is basically all of the Old Testament and Jesus said, I'm not coming to get rid of that stuff, I'm coming to bring it to its fullest meaning. And so, and I said we're going to take a break for a while, kind of like a little side rabbit trail if you will, and kind of. Do a flyover of the Old Testament and just see like how that works out in some of the main points of the Old Testament. And one question that I wouldn't think would be a valid question is when somebody would say, well, where do you get the right to just say Jesus is there and it doesn't say his name? You know, people say, "Well, you're just nah, you're just reading into it." You're, and honestly, if we tried really hard, I mean, I could flip to any page and and say, you know, "Shut the door." Well, Jesus said, you know, "I am the way, the truth, and I'm the door," and so Jesus is the door, and so you see how people could just go too far. And and so I thought well, it'd be cool to preface this series with this. Um, in the in the 24th chapter of Luke, the beginning of the story is the resurrection of Jesus. And then the last part of that chapter is Jesus walking on a road, it's called the road to Emmaus, this is seven miles between Jerusalem and Emmaus, with two men. And they are talking about the events, the crucifixion, the trial, the resurrection. And Jesus just kind of strolls up beside them and he's like, hey guys, what are you talking about? And they kind of explain it and he's like, I, I don't get it, what are you talking about? and they say are you the only one in this area that doesn't know what has happened and they explain to him the story of this man Jesus who did great things and then they accused him they killed him and now he's dead and then this morning they went to the tomb and they said he wasn't there and Jesus is walking with him and this is what he says in verse 25 it says oh foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. And then at the end of the same chapter, in verse 44, He's speaking to His disciples now, He says, These are My words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about Me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then... He opened their minds to understand the Scriptures, and he said to them, "Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all the nations, beginning in beginning from Jerusalem." And so, when we read that, we're like, "Oh yeah, Jesus is the whole Old Testament is about Jesus." So that's where we're where we're going. That's kind of keep that in your mind as you as we as we study through this. Is that Jesus Himself said? All that Old Testament stuff is about me, and so that's what we're going to see, and 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 and, uh, and we're going to, and, and it's my prayer, and I would hope that you would pray the same thing that happened there—that Jesus would open your eyes. Some of you, you read the Bible, and it's like, "Oh, I don't get it." It's because your eyes haven't been opened. Ask the Spirit. I want to understand this. Help me to see what you want me to see in this. Um, and it's not some kind of a spiritual, like a crystal ball, like, please help me see what you're saying. It's nothing like that. It's just some of this stuff is hard to, to grasp. They didn't write like we did. It's, it's, um, we have a lot of cultural biases that go into reading Scripture. And so um, sometimes it's hard. So pray that that would happen. And I, and I will pray that for us in just a moment after we read this. So if you've got a Bible, Genesis chapter 2 is where we're going to begin reading. And let's all stand in honor of God's Word says this in Genesis chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished His work that He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all His work that He had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of knowledge, of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep upon the man to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the, servant, or the serpent said to the woman, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and thus you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, "...I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you." And to Adam he said, "...because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree, of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles you shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread." Therefore the, God's, therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man at the east of the Garden of Eden. He placed the cherubim in a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is God's Word. We just read for four and a half minutes. Mm-hmm. Two chapters. Four and a half minutes. That's not very long. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your Word. I thank you that it gives us life. I pray that we would uh, see the, uh, the importance of getting in your word and reading large chunks of scripture. Or very tiny chunks of scripture like two chapters. Um, teach us from your word. Um, help me as I try to deliver this. And I pray that your spirit would come. Open our eyes to see Christ. Open our minds to receive this. Open our hearts to enjoy your word. Lord, we love you so much. We thank you for what you're going to do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, so I read a lot there just just to kind of build the context of what we're going to talk about. If you're using the the phone app, um, I think I only put one verse on there. But I wanted to build the context around what's happening here. And and I skipped chapter 1 because chapter 2 kind of recaps that. So that's why we didn't do Genesis 1 in Creation I was telling Dad earlier, as I prepare for this sort of flyover of the Old Testament, it makes me want to go back and do verse by verse, really detailed. And so we have, you know, probably the next, I don't know, 40 or 50 years to do that. So that'll be fun. something to look forward to. Um, But I'm just going to walk through this, and we're going to look at some things that are happening here in the very first Drama of Scripture. Most people read this and they just think, "Well, that's something to argue about. That's something for scientists. That's old." We'll see how this works with us. How this how this changes us. At the beginning of chapter two, we see God resting for the first three verses. It says it multiple times. He worked. He created the earth, and on the, in the seventh day he rested. God didn't rest because he was tired. God wasn't wore out because He had just spent the last six days speaking things into existence. No, He rested. It says He blessed that seventh day and he, get, he has given us this rest. And so that's the first thing we see is God has given us this rest and He blessed it. Not because He was tired, but just because we wanted to give us that gift. And if I wanted to, I could trace it, this idea to Christ. Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. When we go to God. We, so, but we're not, we're not going in detail. For me, it's really hard to not do that because it's really cool to me. But um, So that's God rested. If somebody asks you, do you really believe God created the whole earth in seven days? You can say, no. He did it in six. He rested on the seventh day. Silly. So anyway, God rested because of His work and He blessed that. Not because He was tired, but... As a gift to us. And then he kind of in, in the next several verses. He is sort of a recap of creation. And if you read this. And, and you read chapter 1. You're going to be really confused. Because in chapter 1 it's kind of on this day. And this day and this day. And then here it's like well there's no plants growing. There's no water. It's it's kind of confusing. Um, and you have to sit down and really draw, draw out a bunch of stuff. To make this comprehensible. If you're just reading straight through it. Most people when they read um Genesis chapter one. Most scholars will say that Genesis chapter one is written in an almost poetic sense, almost like a song, and so it doesn't. It's a. It's almost like a different genre of writing altogether. And so, but we see that in the next several verses, there's kind of a recap of what is actually on the earth, what's growing, what's not growing. There's no rain. There's actually a mist. This type of thing, and we see some more details of what has happened to kind of set the stage for the rest of the story and where we're going. And then we read kind of this map of where the Garden of Eden is and people say, do you think you could really go back there? And yes, this tells you exactly where the Garden of Eden was. If you wanted to go there now, you could go there. Probably wouldn't look the same, but you could go there. Um, So we see a, a little description of where the Garden is. And then in verse 15, it says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it, and keep it. Now Adam we 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 have to wrap our minds around this. Adam is the representative head of mankind. The representative head. So there are no other people at this point, but when we read about Adam, we must understand that this comes to us. Adam stands as kind of like when the the, the representative of humankind of all that of all people and Adam is that representative head of mankind, of us. God gave him work to do. Adam had a job. I have even taught and heard people taught or teach that work is a... Cursed from the fall, and so work is never gonna be fun and it's just miserable and we gotta hate our job. No, Adam was working before the fall, before sin. God gave him work and it was it was good. He enjoyed it. So we see Adam working, working in the garden, keeping the garden. You know, he's I don't know what he's doing, planting plants, pulling weeds, stuff like that. He's he's just taking care of the garden. He has work. God had made everything out of nothing. He said, Let it be, and there it is. And then Adam comes along with all the stuff that God had made, and he begins to use it to grow plants, to shape things. We've we've talked about this, how God made trees. And we take trees, we cut them down, we build houses. We use what God's given us and we continue to be creative using His creativity. These are gifts that God has given us. And so Adam has work to do. And then in verse 18, we see that God says it's not good that man should be alone. And so we see this quest... God is beginning to try to find a suitable helper or, or a comparable helper for Adam. Because you can imagine, they're kind of looking for a buddy and Adam's saying, Dog, you know, dog's a man's best friend. I understand that. Dogs are great. But dogs are not much for conversation. Dogs, you know, they, they can't dogs can't, you know, clean your house or or iron your clothes or, or help you put in a light bulb. Really, the dogs are not that great. So there's dog, and eh, not quiet. There's a camel, once again, not that good. You know, all these animals, there's just not a suitable helper. There's not a corresponding helper for Adam. And then God creates Eve out of the rib of Adam. And then in verse 23, of course, we see this, this the first. Song spoken by a human being this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man when you read that you can see like Adam's pretty pumped like he's just been around animals and like fish and stuff monkeys and squirrels and and then there's a woman and for me I can I feel his I feel his emotion there he's excited at last this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh The first key point I want to notice is verse 25. The man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. Adam and Eve were laid bare, as it were. No clothes, no nothing, and they were completely unashamed. They were outside, naked, unashamed. No shame. If you think about shame, shame is when I have something that I want to hide and it's not hidden, and so I kind of want to cover it up, but I can't. So I'm ashamed of whatever is being seen. But for Adam and Eve, there was nothing to hide. There was no shame. They were like kids who run around the house naked, and they don't care. You, It doesn't matter. You know, I have to... When, when we're out places, Case... You know, I've been like, where is Case? And he's like, over here, just like with his pants pulled down, going to the bathroom. <laughs> out in the middle of nowhere. I'm, but he has no shame. Why would, why would he go to the bathroom when he could go right here? What I don't get it, Dad. And so we had, we had to teach him, like, no, you don't go outside. He would actually... Leave the inside of the house to go use the bathroom. Go outside. But some of us still do that from time to time. But if it's dark outside, you know, it's late or really early. Um, So they were like kids. There was no shame. There's nothing to hide. Um, They were the only two human beings. And so there's nothing that Adam would compare Eve to or nothing that Eve would compare Adam to other than monkeys and elephants and giraffes and animals. There was nothing. Or fish or or a bird. There was nothing. We typically are, are, are afraid or ashamed of our nakedness because we know that pretty much every person on the planet has seen somebody else on the planet either completely naked or almost unclothed. If you've been to the beach or the swimming pool, you have seen people pretty much laid bare women's bathing suits get smaller and smaller sad to say men's bathing suits keep getting smaller and smaller they we, we worked out of the 70s and they got long and now we're going back to that you've seen that and so what we do in our minds around our spouses is we begin to think well you know they've seen that commercial or they've seen that this or they've seen that person and they're going to compare me to that and and so we're ashamed I don't look like that I'm, I don't want to be I don't want you to see me but Adam and Eve had no shame there was nothing that they could be compared to. And we typically think that. See, we have a pride. Well, I got my clothes on. You know, I can be cool. And I, I can cover up myself. If, I, if my clothes are off, there's, there, I'm, I'm laid bare. I have nothing to cover myself. And we think that we can cover that pride. But when we're exposed, our pride is out there. And there's nothing we can cover up. And usually it's a false pride. And so we realize that what we've been lying about is exposed. And so we have shame. We are ashamed. Women will go to Walmart and buy this red stuff and this little brush and they'll paint their faces. What's that stuff called? That little blush. red stuff. Blush. Yeah, blush. To make themselves look like they're kind of embarrassed. You get that? Like when you get embarrassed, you blush. Then women go to Walmart and buy stuff to look like they're blushing. Adam and Eve had no idea what that was. If you would have said blush, they'd have been like, wait a minute. They, they had no idea what it meant for their for your face to get hot when you're nervous and get really red because somebody called you out. There's no... They had nothing in their mind that could even correspond to being embarrassed or being exposed. They did not know any of those things. They didn't know what it meant to lack or to fall short. They're just people. I'm, I just am. I'm not less than that person or, or better than that person. I just am. I am the woman and he is the man and... There's no comparison, no lacking, no falling short. They didn't know exposure. They didn't know hiding. They didn't know promotion of themselves. They just were as they were. And this, when we read this, this is the most beautiful picture of how a husband and a wife should come together perfectly. No shame. But oftentimes we are ashamed. Even married couples who come together... You know, on the wedding night, it's like, cut the lights out. You know, let's get under the covers and then sticker. You know, because we're nervous. There's no reason we should be nervous. But our culture has created this, this 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 scene where we parade flesh. You turn on the TV, you see flesh. And culture says, this is what's pretty. This is what's attractive. This is what is manly. This is a six-pack. All these things, and we see this. And so we, we automatically, in our minds, we either compare our spells to that or we... Our spouse thinks we're comparing to that one. Usually, we're not. I don't. We don't care, but we do that. And and so this is how it should be. Your spouse should be your standard of attraction. What do you think is pretty? Her. Well, do you think she's pretty? Is she her? Okay then. But oftentimes we don't do this because we're made to compare, and so. From birth, we're trained in this way, and we see these things, and our culture has created this horrible, disgusting situation where a husband and a wife would be ashamed before one another, but that's how it is. But for Adam and Eve, there was no shame. They, had, they did not understand this. Nothing to hide. Nothing to expose. Nothing to cover up. Nothing to flaunt. They were simply, as they had been from their creation, in all their glory, they were image bearers of God Almighty. They were both naked. They were not ashamed. No shame. That's how chapter 2 ends. And then in chapter 3, we begin to see this drama unfold. And we see the very first conflict. Look at what Satan does. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any of the trees of the garden? He uses God's own words... And just twist them just a little bit. Because God didn't say you can't eat of any tree. He said you can eat of all the trees except that one. Satan says, did he really say you can't eat of any tree? She's like, well, no, he didn't say that. He said, just not that tree. Adam and Eve had all that they could ever want. They weren't. She wasn't, it wasn't like, gosh, I'm so hungry. I haven't eaten in days. I just need something. No, they had they she they probably just walked around eating all the time. That's how we would be if we had an an un, or an, an un, uh, unending supply of food everywhere. That's what we would do. We'd just be snacking all the time. Or, or I would. They weren't, she wasn't hungry. He just tricked her. Satan challenges her with God's own words. He lies to her. And yeah, she she gets tricked. She falls for it. But look at verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, he had told her, you're you're not going to die. You'll just be able to think like God. You'll be wise like God is. So she takes that into consideration. She saw that it was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes. So two out of three were actually her own heart desiring this fruit. She liked what she saw. She had a lust of the eyes for the one thing that God had forbidden. One thing. And she took it. Satan deceived her. Yes, he lied. And he will lie to all of us. He's the father of lies. But she saw that it was good for food. She saw that it was a delight to the eyes. She grabbed it. Now here comes Adam, spiritual leader of his family. We should see ourselves. Think of yourselves. This is a representative head of mankind. Spiritual leader. He's supposed to be looking after her, guiding her, caring for her, taking taking care of her, keeping her safe. Where was he at during all this? She took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her. Adam's right there. He's just hanging out. She's talking to a serpent. Now, I don't know if this is a literal snake that's talking. That's, that's, I mean, I'm stopping my wife that she's talking to a snake. But, you know, some people say this wasn't a literal serpent. This is just uh, Satan himself figuratively portrayed as a serpent. But either way, he should have been there taking care of her. But he was there, but he wasn't watching after her. He was, he was just standing there, watched her eat. And then she's like, hmm, want some, babe? Sure. Took it. Spiritual leader, supposed to be guiding, supposed to be protecting, supposed to be keeping her safe, and he just fails. Representative head of mankind fails to do his one job take care of this woman, and he fails. And look at the consequences. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. What is that called? Clothes. Clothes, yes. Shame is introduced to the picture. There was no shame. And then there is shame. They knew that they were naked and they covered themselves. There was something. All of a sudden, there's something to hide. And, I, and we got to hide it. we got to figure out how to hide this. That's shame. Shame comes in. There was no shame, sin. Shame comes in. First, the consequence of the first sin is shame. All of a sudden, it's like, man, we can... We're naked. We've got to cover ourselves. It says their eyes were open. Now, it doesn't mean physical eyes. They could see the whole time. They weren't blind. And all of a sudden they saw. This is like their mind's eye. They, they, were, they were automatically be able to understand what they once were and now what they are. They had seen perfection mentally. I've got nothing to hide. What do, you, what do you mean hide? I have no shame. And all of a sudden, maybe I do have something to shame or something to hide. The I'm, I'm, Shame comes in and, and now they're scared. They had seen the glory that they were created for and now they see that they're not really meeting up to the standard. They're lacking that glory. They see that they fall short before they could look at themselves and say, well, I don't see anything that needs to be covered up. There's nothing, why would I cover up? I'm, I'm fine. There's nothing to cover and all of a sudden, I need to cover this up. Something is, I, need, I, I don't want this to be seen. Who's going to see it? Adam's going to see it. Eve's going to see it. Only two people. The goats are going to see it but they're, ashamed. They want to cover themselves up. They see that they have a sinful nature. They see fallen humanity. They understand embarrassment now. They're embarrassed of themselves, and so they cover themselves. They want to hide that which they think is going to hinder their pride. You know, my pride has been exposed, so now I've got to cover this up so I can get myself back there. This is what they're thinking. But all of a sudden, they are exposed for what they really are. And for any human being, this is humiliating. When we realize what we really are in comparison to God, this is very humiliating. And we cover ourselves. And so they're they're scared. They want to hide. And even even when God comes, they run and hide. This is the God that created them. He made them. They They had a relationship with Him. They talked with Him, walked with Him, and all of a sudden, here He comes and... Oh no, there's God. We gotta. Let's find a place. Get behind that bush. I'll get behind this bush. And God comes in and, and He begins to question them about what has happened. Before, there was nothing to hide. No, there were no, no shame. And all of a sudden, their sin, their nakedness, their imperfection, all of those stand to condemn them when God comes. Romans 5.12 says that through one man, Adam, came sin and death through sin. And because all have sinned, death comes to us. Because we've sinned. You say, that's not fair. Just because Adam sinned, I, it comes to me. Have you sinned? Yeah. Well, then it's fair. Adam is the representative head of mankind. And he sinned. And so that comes all the way down to us. His failure is our failure. So they failed. And what happens when God shows up? They, they hide and God begins to question them. Where are you? What have you done? Don't Don't read this and think, man... God must have been really surprised when he actually found out what they had done. God, God's not asking these questions because he didn't know where they were. It's not like God was like, oh man, where's, where did Adam go? No, God is omniscient. He can see everything. He knows everything. He knows where they were. I believe these questions are asked to maybe give an opportunity for Adam to fess up. And he does it. He, he sins again. He just. We begin to see that one sin just leads to another one, which leads to another one. And we can't get out. That's just what I think, but I don't know that. So it's not like God didn't know where they were. He says, he asked him if he had eaten the fruit and what does Adam do? He blames Eve and God. He says, it was the woman that you gave me. It's like he's saying, God, if you wouldn't give me that woman, I'd be fine. It was was her. Over here it was at last and now it's like, you shouldn't have gave her to me. It was the woman you gave to me. He blames God, but he also blames Eve. Yet that woman you gave me, it's all somebody else's fault, just not mine. And then Eve comes in. God says, what have you done? She does the same thing. Well, it was the the serpent. He deceived me. He tricked me. And then that was sort of true. But remember, this is the lust of her own eyes that caused her to eat the fruit. She sinned. Neither one of these human beings are willing to take the blame for what had happened. It's immediately one sin and then another sin and then another sin. They are dead in their sin. They are trapped. They can't get out. All they can do is sin. He asked, he asked one question. What do they do? Cast the blame. That's all they can do is sin. So Adam, once again, we see this. Representative head is a failure. He represents us to God and he is a failure. He refuses to take the blame for what has happened. In our terms, Adam is a pansy. He's, he just won't take up, he won't take responsibility for what's going on for his family. And so God has to fulfill his promise. And in verse 14, he begins to pronounce curses on them because of what they had done the serpent's curse. He says, You're going to spend the rest of your days on your belly, crawling and eating dust. He puts enmity between the serpent and the seed of the woman. Eve is cursed. First of all, it's going to hurt really bad when you have babies. Any, any lady ever had a baby and it didn't hurt? It hurts. Yeah, it hurts. Thank you, Eve, for doing that for us. Secondly, it says, Your desire shall be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now, this what this boils down to is what we see in our culture where... The woman wants to be the leader. She wants to just just let me take care of this, babe. I've got this. Women have this desire to, to lead the family. But the man is supposed to be leading the family. And so when this happens and the, the two people come together, it's really, really hard. See, we'll add... What had been the case is Adam and Eve had this perfect, complementary relationship. Adam was the was the representative head. He was the leader of the family. He was the spiritual leader. He would guide his wife, take care of her, work for her, sacrifice for her, carry the weight of the responsibility of the family on his shoulders. She came in as a helper to correspond to him, to, to help in, in issues, to, to do her part as a woman. And this family worked exactly how it was supposed to be. Now... Same rules apply, except you're cursed to do that. Before, Eve was like, I would love to submit to my husband. I want to help my husband. I want to honor my husband. Adam was like, absolutely. Hey, I will take the responsibility of this family. I will lead. I will carry that weight. I will be the the ox of this family, pulling and carrying the weight on my shoulders. Now, you're still required to do that, but you don't want to. And if you're a man or a woman in these positions, you understand this is really hard to do. This is not what we want to happen. When we get married for guys, it's really easy to say, you go ahead, babe. Man, I you know, wish whatever you say is fine with me, babe. It's cool, whatever. And we, we, men have a tendency to back up when women have a tendency because they're typically strong-willed, don't mind leading, don't mind taking that responsibility. So a man will say, he'll just step back and say, it don't matter. And the woman will say, well, I'll take that spot. And the man will step back a little bit more and the woman will say, well, I don't mind taking that spot. And sooner or later you've got a dude who's just chilling and relaxing, whatever, whatever, babe. I don't care if mom ain't happy, nobody happy, so you just do whatever you want to do and just let me know where I need to be. And I'll put my dress shirt on and I'll be there. And the woman said, absolutely, I can do this because I can clean, I can do the bills, I can do all this stuff. Their brains just work with this stuff and it's easy that way, but it's not the way God's designed it to be. And so now it's really hard and we really have to work to make it work the way it's supposed to whereas for Adam and Eve before they sinned it just happened. It was just good. And so that's how this curse works is her desire was was for her husband and he shall rule over you. And then Adam's curse instead of delightfully working in the garden and keeping it and taking care of it now you will work in the garden and it will be really hard and you will sweat and, and you will not eat unless you work. It's going to be difficult for you to work, so we see that nothing's really changed, except now we have a sin nature pulling us away from what we're supposed to be. Adam's still working, but his nature says I don't want to work. Adam's still the leader, but his nature says oh, I don't want to lead. Eve is still the the wife, the helper of the husband, but she says, Well, I want to lead. I don't want to help. I want to lead. I'm a woman. Hear me roar. I want to lead this family, and nothing's changed, but now it's really hard, and our sin nature pulls us away. Thank you, Adam. Because from the one man, Adam, sin entered the world, and death through sin. And it's come to us, and now all die because all have sinned. So God curses them. But let's go back up to verse 15. I want to look at this curse that God puts on the serpent. And this point is, uh, I've labeled the seed of redemption. You've, a lot of you have heard this before. This may be review. Some of you, this may be new. And my prayer is that the Holy Spirit would illuminate this for it to be exciting for all of us. Because when I read this, I've got it highlighted in my Bible. and So I can't read it without thinking, like, highlighter? Like, this is something special, you know? Um, but this is cool. First of all, I will put in between, enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Now, God had told them, in the day that you eat of the fruit of that tree, you will surely die. This says, first curse, you're going to have offspring. So they're not going to die. They're going to have offspring, right? This is its like God's kind of going against his what He said was going to happen. If you look over at verse 20, Adam names his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. So she's going to go on and she's going to have kids and they're going to have kids and they're going to have kids and they're going to have kids and we're going to be here someday. When God had said, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. So... It didn't quite happen. What we see here is that that curse for Adam and Eve—you will surely die. That's not just physical death. That's immediately it's a spiritual death. Ephesians one or Ephesians two says that we are dead in our sins. We are all by nature children of wrath. We're born that way into sin, spiritually dead. And then eventually comes the physical death. We will die someday. They weren't going to go on and have kids and be allowed to fulfill that original mandate to be fruitful and multiply. So, all of a sudden, there's this offspring idea. Secondly, that word offspring. When we read that, we can, for us, it could mean plural or singular. When we read it in English, it's it could be either or. Like if Case came out here, I've got one kid, I could say, this is my offspring. And everybody would say, yes, it is. My dad could come out here and point at me and Case and Allison and say, these are my offspring. And that would be true. It could be more than one. So, we read this, it's like offspring... In English, it's kind of hard to grasp. When you read in the Hebrew here, this word offspring is singular. One offspring. I will put enmity between your offspring and her offspring. And so all of a sudden, we see this this very singular, very specific sort of promise. When you begin to dig deeper, you learn that that is singular. So the promise that God's giving is that one specific promise offspring, one specific seed your translation may say or one specific descendant and the last clause of that verse clears that up, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel, so it begins to get even more clearer one specific person, one specific man will bruise the head of Satan. When you read in Scripture and you see a genealogy, it's usually the fathers. Like this man had this son, who had this son, who had this son, who had this son. There not very many women mentioned. But here it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. So it's like there's this woman here who's still in a genealogy. She shouldn't be there. It should be Adam. But it's her offspring and the word for bruise is better translated crush. And some of your Bibles say that, crush. It means to force down really hard like you were going to stomp on something. So when we put all of this together, this curse that God is pronouncing on Satan, is He's promising someday there's going to come a single man from the lineage of this woman who's going to crush your head. This is a death blow. Yes, Satan will bruise his heel. And that's not that's not a mortal wound, but... The wound inflicted on Satan will prove to be the very blow that kills him. In theological terms, this verse is called the Proto-Evangelium. That means the first gospel. The very first time. In some of your Bibles, page 2. There's going to come a man who's going to do away with sin and death and evil forever. Someday from the seed of this woman. The next thing I want to notice... Is verse twenty-one, and this is where we're going to spend the last little bit of our time. Verse twenty-one says, "And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins, and he clothed them." This is important. This is where we're going to. Well, this is what I want you to take home. Even now, what God made them clothes out of skin. Okay, we get it. Even now, this is this is awesome. Remember, before they had sinned, there was no shame. Nothing to cover up, nothing to hide, nothing to promote, nothing to be exposed, no pride, nothing. They were just open and it worked and everything was as it was and should be. They were totally unashamed before one another and before God. And then after they sinned, shame was introduced. Their eyes were open. They wanted to cover themselves. I don't want to be naked anymore. I want to be covered. Their shame comes. They are ashamed before God and before one another. They no no longer had a perfect relationship. Now we can imagine, if we were just reading this, God is angry at this point. He made them, He gave them everything they could ever want, gave them work to do, and it was great, gave them relationships, and it was great, He gave them dominion over the whole earth, all of the animals, all the fish, all the trees, gave them one rule, they broke it. One stinking rule, and the reason they broke it it was because it looked good, and it was desired desire to make one wise. They wanted to be like God. And they broke the rule. Adam or Eve ate. And she offered it to Adam. And he ate too. So we can, without a doubt, God is upset. I would, I would be upset. And so when we begin to read this story, we're like, man, God's going to get them. Like, He's cursing them. Man, this is going to be, oh man, it's going to be bad. Like, they deserve. And we're reading this, we're like, man, they deserve to die. Like, get them, God. Curse them. Get them. And this is us. This is representative head. This is where we think about Adam. we got to think about us. Get him, God. Justice. You're a good God. You better get him. But in verse 21, he doesn't do that. We see something we don't expect at all. God takes the initiative and makes clothes for him. Well, I mean, I, I don't know what that looks like for God to make clothes, but instead of calling them out and saying, look at you, you're naked, you're dirty, you're sinful, you broke the rules, like if you won rule and you couldn't keep it, you failed, Adam, you're a pansy, Eve, you know, you make bad decisions. He doesn't do that. He makes clothes for them. There's no reason for God to make them clothes at all. None whatsoever. And He does it. They had made clothes from leaves. Those are some pretty crappy clothes. God makes clothes for them from skin. He would, have completely, he would have been completely justified if He would have struck them dead on the spot, dropped them dead. He would still be a great and mighty God if He would have done this, but He didn't do that. He makes them clothes. He says, well, I'll go get some clothes, some skin and make clothes for you. This is mercy on page 3 of the Bible. Mercy. They deserve death and nothing short of death. He even told them, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And they didn't die Yet. So mercy comes in to keep them from getting what they deserve because they deserve death. But we also see grace. They didn't deserve new clothes. If they didn't die, the, the least that they deserved was, was to be to, to sit in the dirt in their nakedness and their shame and misery for the rest of their lives until they just rot away. But they don't get that either. He makes them clothes. He gives them what they don't deserve. They didn't earn it. They didn't deserve it. If anything, they earned and deserved everything but so we see here after the very first sin, undeserved, unmerited, free grace from God given to humanity, the representative head of mankind and his wife. Another major thing that we can't skip over is the clothing itself. God, It says God made them clothes or made them garments of skins. Where did God get skin from? An animal. Skin comes off of animals. So, an animal had to die so that they could be covered up. Or maybe several animals. If it's deer, maybe one or two. If it's rabbits, you know, 30 or 40. I don't know what he made them out of, but something had to die so that they could be covered up. So that their nakedness could be covered. So that their shame could be hidden. God killed an animal to cover the shame of these two people who had disobeyed him outright. They wanted His position, His throne, I want to be God, broke the rules, and God kills an animal to cover their sin. They wanted God's throne, their sentence was death, and a death occurs, but it's not theirs yet. An animal died to cover their shame, cover their immediate effects of their sin, so that it could be taken care of. So the representative head of mankind, who is a complete failure, banished from the garden, and lives in skins to cover his shame. Remember I said last week, or Jesus said, "Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them." So how does he do that? First thing we got to understand is that Jesus is called, he's literally called the last or second Adam. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22 says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And then in verse 45, Thus it is written, the first Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So we see from this that there's this continuity between Adam and Jesus. They're connected all the way through Scripture. Adam is the first man, the first representative head. Jesus is the second Adam, the second representative head. And there are many ways in which Jesus fulfills all the things that Adam was supposed to be as the representative head. For example, Adam was given dominion over the earth and over the animals and the birds and the fish. Matthew 28 says that, And Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So where Adam has this limited dominion over the earth under God, Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. He rules all things perfectly. He's not just a man made in the image of God. The Bible says He is the express image of God. And all the fullness of God dwells bodily in Jesus. Jesus is God. So now our representative head isn't just this man who's in the image of God but but fails and he's a pansy. It is God Himself representing us before the Father. We also see Jesus fulfilling this story in His life and death. Jesus stands in for His bride as our substitution. Remember, Adam was standing with Eve when she sinned. He was right there with her. He should have protected her. He should have stopped her. He should have warned her. Baby, no, I I think we ought to rethink this. But He didn't. He failed as that leader, as that groom. And Christ comes not only as the perfect spiritual leader, but He stands in our place. He just bumps us out and says, "Let Let me take this. We are the bride of Christ. We are His church. And so... Jesus comes in and stands in for us. He stands in our place. While Adam stood idly by watching his wife sin, Jesus steps into our place and says, Let me me handle this for you. And instead of playing the blame game like Adam did, our representative head, our great representative, this pansy of a man, God, or Jesus... Took the, or took the punishment that was due us even though He had never done anything wrong. Nothing. He just steps into our place. He was innocent. We were guilty. Isaiah says that our iniquities were laid on Him. He bore our sorrows and our griefs. So Jesus steps in as the bridegroom, the representative head, the, the spiritual leader where Adam failed. In the death of Christ, He fulfills the promise of that God had made to Satan in verse 15 of chapter 3 because remember God promised that a human the seed of a woman would bruise or crush your head someday would deliver the death blow and when Jesus went to the cross that's what happened many of you have watched the, that movie The Passion where Jesus is praying in the garden and he stands up and he stomps the head of that snake that's been crawling around I, I, I love that scene because that's what happened when Jesus went to the cross he won the victory it looked like he got beat He got bruised. His heel was bruised. It looked like he was beaten, but he won that victory once and for all when he died on the cross. So Satan can no longer hold our sin against us. Which leads to the last point, is that Jesus' death on the cross takes care of the immediate effects of our sin and the eternal effects of our sin. Remember, when Adam and Eve sinned, they deserved death. They were condemned. They stood stood to bear the full wrath of God. But instead, God took the initiative to cover their shame by killing an animal. Their shame was covered, but they were still sinners. And that sin comes all the way to us. And we are born into sin because of Adam's sin. And we all stand to be condemned because of our sin. Our sin stands to condemn us. But the good news is that a death has taken place to finally cover all of our shame now and forever An animal died for Adam and Eve. God saw fit to give His own son as the lamb who would take away our sin, who would die for us. He gave His own son. Isaiah says it was the will of the Lord to crush Him. Paraphrase, God wanted to kill His son for your sin. So if you're a Christian now, the blood of Jesus washes your sin and your shame away. It doesn't just cover it, it gets rid of it. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because He's taken it all on Himself. If you're still condemned, that means Jesus missed some of it. And so we are justified by faith alone and our sin is forgiven because of our faith in Jesus and because of what He's done for us on the cross. So just like God made clothes for Adam and Eve... They didn't deserve it. They didn't earn it. They deserve to die. They deserve to be dead in their sin. In the same way, we don't earn or deserve God's favor, God's love, God's forgiveness. We don't do anything to get it. It's completely free. We just believe in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. That's it. Jesus is now our representative head. So Jesus steps in our place and bears our sins on the cross. And now... He is before the throne of God above, standing as our mediator. And so when Satan comes to condemn us, man, did you see what Paul did? Jesus says, that one's mine. It's already taken care of. Remember that cross? Just like the song we sang, when, 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 when Satan brings up our sin in our faces, it doesn't work. Because Jesus has already paid for it. I think it was uh, Martin Luther who said... Uh, Satan is a scoundrel and he will bring your sin up to you and remind you of all the things you've done wrong. But he says, what I do is I say, yes, Satan, you are correct. I am a sinner and thank you for reminding me of all the things that Jesus has already paid for on the cross. I appreciate that. It doesn't stand to condemn us anymore if we believe in Jesus. And so, as we see this story begin to unfold from the very beginning i hope we begin to long for this seed this this, there's this seed coming and he's gonna he's gonna crush satan's head and it's gonna take a long time to get there but it's happening and we see this drama begin to unfold and the rest of the bible is that is that being fulfilled every page is god fulfilling this promise that this seed will come and crush the head of satan and so i'm excited to continue on in this series it's going to be fun um and i hope you are too so um